Well, uh, we are in a rare topical study this summer, as I often do this when people are uh, traveling here and there, taking some classic book and uh, bringing to you some of the greatest ideas from some of the greatest books ever written. And uh, we've done that with quite a variety of things. Then if you're on vacation, you could pick up the book and read what you're missing and more. But uh, we... Uh, this summer are in a study of a different kind of book than we've done in the past, one called Christianity and Liberalism for its 100th anniversary, a imp- important book that's been on the list of uh, top 100 most influential books or most important books of the 20th century or of the millennium, and uh, one that explains the religious divide in this country as well as any other um, We've uh, considered a number of aspects of this difference, the same words being used, but very different ideas of God and man and Christ, and today, salvation. And I would like to read to you from uh, John chapter 6, starting in verse 1, a little bit longer passage where we read about Jesus being the bread of life. Here now from John chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But he said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, in number about five thousand, And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise to the fish, fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten." Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into the boat and went over to the sea sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose, because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And they received willingly him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Now on the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and Jesus had not entered that boat with his disciples, 
but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread, after the Lord had given thanks. When people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food that endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it's written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would truly fill us with Christ, that we should want and need no more. We pray that this salvation that he has come to bring us, this life that has no end, would continue its strength and its progress in us and through us into this world that you have made. We pray that we might be wise and an understanding people and that we would believe in a true gospel of a true Jesus who gives us true hope. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. 20th century America was, in so many ways, the best of times and the worst of times. There was a huge surge of energy and optimism. They called it the age of progress with advancing technology and a roaring economy. Waves of immigrants had doubled the country's population to 74 million in just a few years. And a majority of these immigrants settled down in urban slums, toiling long hours in factories and sweatshops, suffering from disease, poverty, and squalor. Some turned to prostitution, some to drunkenness, crime, corruption, Social unrest grew as the gap between rich and poor grew unchecked. In those days, there was a man named Walter Rauschenbusch who became the minister of a tiny German Baptist church in New York City in a crime-infested neighborhood called Hell's Kitchen. And no cable subscribers. They didn't even have a cooking show there. Just human misery that he could see firsthand. Rauschenbusch performed funerals for malnourished children who were working long hours in the factory. He interceded for church members who were thrown out of hospitals because they couldn't afford treatment. He was profoundly moved by the conditions he saw all around him. 
and he announced that the present crisis demanded a new theology that would restructure society itself. Now, he had also already embraced the new liberal theology that we have learned about this summer that promised to rid the Bible of pious myths and give us back the real historical Jesus, it claimed. And Rauschenbusch said that Jesus was one who went into the city to utter those withering woes against the dominant class. So Rauschenbusch did the same. He wrote a best-selling manifesto called A Theology for the Social Gospel, calling for a work in this world to establish the kingdom of God with social justice for all. Now that message inspired a very important movement in our country as it strongly resonated, resonated with Christians who were eager to make a difference in the world. It gave new energy to labor reforms and unionization, uh, the Anti-Saloon League, and the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the YMCA, soup kitchens, and many other Christian social enterprises. His uh, friend and colleague, Charles Sheldon, coined a popular slogan at this time, what would Jesus do? That movement uh, was not only in the industrial northeast. Uh, Mark M Matthews, for instance, was a, the minister of the largest Presbyterian church in the country, over 10,000 members in that religious city of Seattle. From his first Presbyterian church, he denounced corrupt politicians, businessmen, and saloon keepers. His church had night schools, unemployment services, kindergarten, an anti-tuberculosis clinic, and the nation's first church-owned radio station. And this was the man elected moderator or the uh, head for the year of Presbyterian Church USA in 1912. This was a nationwide movement. Well, it went beyond the nation. On the mission field, there was a major shift from heralding Christ to helping people. The truth is, as we've seen, the church simply couldn't agree who Jesus was. But they could still at least agree to minister to the poor. One of the more prominent novelists of the day was a Presbyterian missionary to China named Pearl S. Buck. She wrote a famous article in Harper's Magazine called, Is There a Case for Foreign Missions? Well, she expressed plenty of doubt. She said, some of us, to some of us, not her, Jesus is still the divine Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, but to many of us, he has ceased to be that. I don't believe in original sin, and I agree with the Chinese who feel that their people should be protected from such superstition, end quote. If there was still a case for missions, she said, it was to bring the world a new salvation, a salvation from hunger, a salvation from oppression, a salvation not of the individual but of the whole society, not from sin but from systemic injustice. This was the progressive movement in America and beyond. This was the social gospel. Now, I hope that I've explained it to you in such a way that you have at least a little sympathy for some of the early leaders. And I ask you as we begin 
Does Christianity have the resources to address such difficult social problems? Well, yes, indeed. In fact, it has proved it time and again in history. The church was the first to recognize the plight of the poor in the Greco-Roman world when food pantries, soup kitchens, homeless shelters, orphanages, and hospitals were all invented by Christians in the second and third centuries. Or we could think of the massive elevation of society that came at the Reformation and how the word refugee was coined when hundreds of thousands of Huguenots and other displaced Protestants were received generously into the nations of Northern Europe. Or how the Great Awakening averted a French-style revolution by raising the condition of the poor on both sides of the Atlantic. Or how the, the Free Church of Scotland assigned deacons to every block of the major cities of the country as the Industrial Revolution threw many into poverty. A few years after that, paraphrasing Elijah, Charles Spurgeon said, the God that answers by orphanages, let him be God. Did not the prophets rebuke those who neglected the poor and oppressed and demand judges to judge justly? The last words of David were, He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of the Lord. Didn't the Lord also teach us to love our neighbor and illustrate it with a parable of the Good Samaritan? And didn't the apostle to the Gentiles himself not only remember the poor, but command the churches on the first day of the week to have each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper? Command those who are rich in the present age, he said to Timothy, to be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, ready, to, uh, sorry, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Well, much, much more could be said. So, where am I going? Should we therefore become social gospel people or seek to incorporate social justice into the mission of the church? Well, by no means. And I hope today to give you some small help to answer this difficult question. But we begin with the passage before us today. Of the many important things that are here, the main thing that I want you to see today is this. The main problem Jesus came to solve. The main problem Jesus came to solve. As the chapter opens, we are introduced to an enthusiastic crowd of thousands. It was the season of Passover, a patriotic time where they remembered their great deliverance from the Egyptian oppressors and God's miraculous provision of bread in the wilderness. There was a tremendous expectation also that time of year because, you see, they were suffering again under Roman oppression, and God had promised to send them a Messiah, a deliverer. So it is that when Jesus feeds that great multitude bread in the wilderness, they are ready then and there to take him as their king, to make him king by force. A man who could feed masses can surely lead a nation to overcome its unjust rulers. But then, mysteriously, Jesus departs. He, he does not do as they expect him to do. 
They look for him, and when they find him, it's the next day he's teaching in a synagogue at Capernaum. Rabbi, when did you come here? They ask. You seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to everlasting life. Oh, they say, give us this bread always. Well, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. This is the main problem that Jesus came to solve. What does it mean? It means that Jesus came into the world not primarily as a miracle worker, but as a Savior. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He came to give his life a ransom for many, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And those miracles were, as he says, signs, illustrations of his salvation. But the people didn't understand. Oh, they wanted bread. Jesus was giving eternal life. They wanted revolution. Jesus was giving regeneration and resurrection. It's as though the Lord were saying to the multitudes, look, you, you saw all those hungry people fed, and, and you wish to see them fed again now. Your, your heart goes out to more hungry multitudes, no doubt, and would rejoice to see them full. That's all well and good. I have compassion on them also. But it's essential that you understand that hunger is not their main problem. The darkest shadow hanging over their lives is not an empty stomach, hard as that is to bear. You are looking only at the outward condition of man. I look much deeper, and I find a far more serious and dangerous condition. Hunger can make life hard in this world, but sin will ruin people both in this world and the next. And what is more, the Lord as much says, you think nothing could be more exciting, more breathtaking than to see this crowd miraculously fed once again, but you are not measuring things correctly. For nothing more is required of me to feed this multitude than to bless the bread and break it, as you've already seen. A great miracle, no doubt. But to save people from their sins, that requires much, much more. It requires the greatest thing that has ever been done. It will take more to bring men to salvation for eternal life than it took to create the whole universe and to hang the stars in their courses. What will it take to free people from their sins? It will take the cross. And that is what he means in verse 51. I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. You eat that, and you will never be hungry again. He came to give his life a ransom for many. The truth is there were a great many hungry people in the world whom Jesus did not feed because that was not his first purpose. The miracles illustrated his mission. The miracles were intended to show us not that Jesus is primarily a need meter, but to show us that he is the great Savior and author of eternal life. Because if he can do the one, he can do the other. That is the meaning. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me 
shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But just as people don't understand Jesus' greatest gift, they don't understand their greatest need. People need life. Life. That's what Jesus was always talking about. Verse 40 here in this chapter, I didn't read. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. To bring life to the dying world was his grand errand. What does he mean? Life in heaven when we die? Well, much more than that. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And in the Bible, death describes all that sin produces, even here and now. The Bible says we were dead in transgressions and sins. Still breathing, yes. But dead in transgressions and sins, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and by nature children of wrath. Now that is a great need. Paul can talk of people who live for pleasure, that they are dead while they live. Or John writes, he who doesn't love his brother abides in death. Such people still breathe. They have existence in the world, but they are in the most fundamental and important sense, death, dead. For death describes all that sin does in a human life. The misery, the frustration, the fear, the despair, all the way that sin harms and destroys in our world, that abides in death, the addictions, the unfulfilled longings, the desperate ache of life without God, the crushing disappointments, every failure of human life to rise to its potential, the aimlessness, the pointlessness, the meaninglessness of it all. It's, it's human existence cut off from the God that's the source of all good and happiness and living under the burden of his just judgment looming above. Imagine a world of nothing like nothing but that because when people breathe their last year and carry that state of death with them into the world to come, it's what the Bible ominously calls the second death. More of the same waste and want. But life, as Jesus describes, is the opposite. It's, it's life and life more abundantly, he says. Wholeness of life. Life to be lived according to its true purpose. This is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To have in the Lord peace and joy that comes from fellowship with him and hearts full to the brim with his love. It is life to be lived and enjoyed now and perfected forever. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly, he says in chapter 10. This is good news that people can live and live forever, truly live. And so this is the meaning of verse 35, this remarkable promise where he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. And the great ministry of Jesus to the world is not his miraculous feeding or even his healing. His greatest gift, that which is most precious to us, whether we know it or not, is to give life, true life, life eternal. Well, this is the, 
main thing I wanted to point out from the passage, and with this in mind, we can understand then the main error of the social gospel. It was not wrong because it was seeking to do good works in the world, seeking to help people with a variety of needs, but it ignored the central problem that Jesus came to solve. It ignored the central problem that Jesus came to solve. For, as the Bible tells us from the beginning, the root of all our human misery and woe is sin. And Jesus is the sin solution. People need a new heart and a new life, which he alone can give. But these are the, various, these are the very things ignored by the so-called social gospel. One man at the time summarized the new message of the social gospel like this. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. They took out the very things that Jesus came to do. And the message did positive harm to those who believed it, leaving them under their burden of sin. So uh, the author I've been quoting in this series, Gresham Machen, he told a story about how one day, a couple of months ago, he, he says he walked into a, uh, a church in a distant city, seemed to be the leading church of the town, the, the day when the new Sunday school teachers were being inducted into their office. And so there was a sermon on Christian education where the pastor told the people that formerly there had been a terrible view that children were lost in sin and needed a redeemer. And he got a laugh from the congregation, quoting the old, congregation, the old theologians about the awfulness of sin and that men were born in this world in need of redemption and under the righteous judgment of God. So he said, people used to believe that children were born in sin in need of the Savior. But we have learned in these days that it's our duty as Christian teachers, merely by the teaching of Jesus, to draw out the good that is already in them. Well, Machen says, the question arose in my mind, why would he quote theologians and cast ridicule on the justice of God? Because he would have had a better laugh if he had quoted the words of Jesus. It was Jesus, he said, that said the most awful things about the terribleness of sin and the justice of God more than any man exceedingly strange how men, he says, who claim to have Jesus as master do not speak of him as Savior and cast despite on the things which are at the very center of his teaching, end quote. The focus of the good news in the Bible must always be kept in mind. Conversion over culture, salvation over society, a new birth over a new social order, spiritual regeneration over social revolution, evangelism over economics. Oh, the gospel brings an enormous change in people and society, yes. But we must start with the gospel and see what a difference these other things make. I, I listened recently to part of a BBC interview with John Lawson, a name you probably don't know. He was infamous in Britain for running the largest brothel in London and some other choice things, but in prison God called him to himself and, and now just a, a, a new man uh, filled with uh, compassion and energy 
doing the work in prison ministry the, that he's doing now. B, the BBC asked him, well, is this your redemption? <laughs> no, said John, everything was done for me on the cross. I'm just thankful that God rescued me. He wants to bring that joy to others. But just a reminder to me of the profound difference that Christ makes in a human life, one from giving all of his efforts at corrupting the world now to redeeming it. We, 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 we need a gospel that deals with the root of our human problem. We need full hearts, much more than full bellies, And what transforms people and nations is a living Savior. That's why he says, don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to everlasting life that the Son of Man will give you. I'm not begrudging any good works of of any Christian social organization or otherwise, but without the good news, to bring the power of new life, well, you know what happened in the liberal church? its ministry utterly collapsed. There was nothing to sustain it. At the beginning of the 20th century, the mainline Protestant churches in the U.S. supplied 80% of North America's missionaries. But taking this turn into liberalism and focusing on social action, the more they focused on it, the less less they had to sustain it. So that by the year 2000, those same denominations supplied not 80%, but 6% of the North American missionary force. An utter collapse. There can be no work without workers. And that is why I say that the salvation that Jesus has come to bring, as much as it affects the world, must begin with the individual heart. This here in my chest, this is the problem that Jesus came to save. A new heart a new life, rescuing us from the wrath of God, forgiving us of our sins, washing us clean, making us new people in Him. Machen writes, the older evangelism, the the modern liberal preacher says, sought to rescue individuals, but our newer evangelism seeks to transform the whole organism of society. The older evangelism was individual, the new evangelism is societal. Well, he says that's not correct. Not entirely correct, though it contains an element of truth. It's true that historic Christianity does emphasize, against the claims of society, the worth of the individual's soul. It provides for the individual. I put this in your notes, by the way, in the back of the bulletin. It provides for the individual a refuge from all the fluctuating currents of human opinion a secret place of meditation where a man can come alone into the presence of God. It does give a man courage to stand, if need be, against the world. It resolutely refuses to make of the individual a mere means to an end. It brings the individual face to face with his God. In that sense, it's true that Christianity is individualistic and not social. But it's not only individualistic, he went on to say. On the Christian view of the worship of God, it's ever to be carried on also in the service to one's fellow men. And he quotes John's letter, he who doesn't love his brother whom he's seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Dear friends, we look at the world and we we have a, a, a 
great burden for it. I, I hope that we do. It's, it's, uh, it's misery, it's, it's injustice, it's, it's hunger. Uh, the same things that were treading down the world in Roman days are still very much alive in our day. And the people sought in Jesus, well, a king, but not the kind of king that he was, not the kind of good news that he came to bring. Dear friends, Jesus will simply never be compelled to be a social justice warrior. He came to this world as a savior, and a savior he will always be from first to last, and any elevation of the world and its society will come as a result of what he has done in the individual souls of men and women, boys and girls. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There is born to you in the city of David this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That is the hope of the world. Let us pray together. We thank you, gracious Father, for the bread of life, that bread of heaven that, that has come to get, make us also live forever in him. We thank you for such great and gracious words to feed upon, to be satisfied, never to hunger, never to thirst. We pray that you would create or recreate in us all a sharp awareness of the deep need that we have, which he alone can fill, the forgiveness, the reconciliation with you, the hope, the peace, the joy, the holiness, the things that the world cannot give us nor take away from us. We pray that you would give grace to your people who seek to live out of the overflow of this new life, to give your life and your goodness to a needy world. Give grace that we might live henceforth in him and through him and upon him, our Lord Jesus. O oh Lord, feed us till we want no more. We pray.